today on The Lab Report. I've got a lot of stress and it might be affecting my brain. Might be? Well, who should we talk to? Dr. Nate Bergman, specialist in cognitive wellness. Let's do it. Yep. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Anyway. I don't know. I think you're a little confused. Maybe you're stressed out. What's new? Mm. Got two small kids at home, you know? It happens. It does happen. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hello, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Welcome to the Lab Report. It's good to have you here. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. You're welcome. Yeah, we're here. Actually, both of us are here on behalf of Genova Diagnostics. Thank you, Genova Diagnostics, for the platform and the microphones. Right. And this is a podcast about all things functional medicine. Specialty lab testing. Integrative therapeutics. And the like. That's right. And if you haven't yet subscribed, you should. Do it. Yeah, and Subscribe. maybe review and rate and... Hit those stars. You can contact us and email us feedback, questions of the day. You can email us podcast at gdx.net. Look, we've got errands for you to run. I know, you're so bossy anymore, Michael. Me? No. No. Just kidding. Well, what are we... Uh, wait, hold on. I've got an Oliver drop. Chappers, what are we talking about today? Good <laughs> question, Oliver. What are we talking about today? What are we talking about today? Well, today we are going to be talking to a very smart individual... Mm. Dr. Nate Bergman. So Dr. Bergman specializes in the aging brain and treating cognitive decline, early onset dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. So I think um, he's a really great guest to have on right now. Yeah, he's actually done a lot of work with Dale Bredesen. Yeah, which is like, how cool is that? The recode protocol. So we're going to ask him all about that. Plus, you know what else, Michael? What's that? You know, we talk all the time. You're pretty stressed out. Yeah. Got a lot going on. There's well, lot- I got two small kids at home, but yeah, that being said, there's there's lots of people out there with small kids and they're not all that stressed, <laughs> it seems. No, actually, I bet you they are stressed. They just manifest their stress differently. What are you saying? Saying I'm, I'm manifesting my stress all over the place? Kind of. I have to kind of watch where I step. There's manifestations laying around? Yeah. Yeah. No, hmm. I'm, I'm just saying. So I'm thinking, okay, well, all this stress can really affect your brain and how you process words. And maybe it's why you make words up. Processing words? <laughs> Listen, I am a pro at processing words, and I tend to think that my ability to make words up is probably... A sign of genius? A sign mm. that my brain is working on just oh. this other echelon, this other frequency. Well, I have an idea. Let's ask Dr. Bergman and get some insight, because because you're so young, what are you, like 22? 38. Right. So this is the time for us to intervene, to keep you aging well and have a healthy brain so we got to act now we, I, I agree actually <laughs> all things being equal i, yeah, I, I, I totally agree yeah. that my brain uh is showing signs of deterioration and we should act now let's call him we are very excited to have with us today michael dr nate bergman yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah dr nate bergman is a do I'm a DO. We talk about this all the time. Um, He's board certified in internal medicine, and he's also an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner. He completed a fellowship in geriatric medicine at the Cleveland Clinic with an emphasis on optimizing the aging brain and body. While at the Cleveland Clinic, he co-developed the Center for Functional Medicine's Program for Cognitive Impairment and Brain Health, and he also worked as a research fellow at the NIH and also holds an MBA in healthcare leadership. 
Currently, Dr. Bergman is the Chief Scientific Wellness Officer at Kemper Center for Cognitive Health and Wellness and hosts his own podcast entitled Evolving Past Alzheimer's, which can be found on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere podcasts can be heard. He's a frequent speaker on cognitive wellness and a key opinion leader in functional medicine, which is why we have him on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the Welcome. Lab Report, Dr. Bergman. Thank you so much for being on. No, oh, thanks for having me. Great yeah. to be I guess one of the first things is, you know, we ask this a lot of our guests, but for people, if there's anyone out there who's not familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about your journey from traditional medicine to functional medicine. Yeah, well, I, I kind of always knew I wasn't going to just do the the regular, you know, be a hospitalist or cardiologist or a surgeon. I, was, I, I wasn't quite um, bold enough to go into naturopathic medicine or <laughs> acupuncture. I was a child as a doctor and lawyer, I'm an MD, and it was just a little bit too outside my comfort zone, but um, but the DO thing really worked for me. You had the manual manipulation instead of looking at the true nature of a human being, and this seemed a holistic, and at the same time, you kind of got the, the, the training I was after. I was fortunate to meet Dr. Mark Hyman in my first semester of medical school, yeah. um, and uh, I, I shattered him a little bit. And when I went there, I, I really realized, hey, this is this is what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, and then I, I kind of went through medical school and went through internal medicine residency. And um, during my geriatric fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, I had been keeping in touch with Institute for Functional Medicine. I was going to some trainings. I think I was the first medical student that went through AFMCP, their big uh, training. And then Dr. Dale Bredesen's paper came out, and um, that's when uh, the stars aligned for me. And I really said, okay, this is this is what I'm going to pursue here professionally. And and so I was really lucky that three days after I finished my geriatric fellowship, I rolled right into working at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. Yeah. That was really it was unbelievable, unbelievable yeah. opportunity. That's that's really interesting. I mean, what a great <laughs> to to run into Dr. Hyman and begin shadowing right. him so early in the career. That that just sounds like uh, so serendipitous. Um, yeah, was and Mark it, has been great, great to me. It's been uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, what was it about the about running in and reading Bredesen's paper that really, I guess, perked your interest and passion into cognitive wellness? Well, it was already my world, right? Um, I I always sort of knew that I was going to go into the care of the older adults or the aging brain. And um, I really got interested in it because of my own illness. But what Dr. Bredesen was doing was was really, so first of all, I think probably most of your listeners know, he, he was a giant in kind of the traditional understanding pathology in the world of neurodegenerative diseases. So Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other things. I mean, there's the conference that's, that's held on a regular basis that's organized around Dr. Bredesen's work and dependence and receptors. And I mean, he really has been a major contributor. Yeah. And um, when he, when he provided a mechanistic understanding with metabolic targets and this, this concept of um, giving Alzheimer's personalities, you know, metabolic subtypes, it was uh, like nothing I had seen. And a lot of the functional medicine approaches were still somewhat general just didn't seem to have the level of precision to the extent that Bredesen was talking about and still is talking about. And so I thought, wow, this is, this is just amazing. And I got, I got into it. I got into it pretty quickly. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But even with that, so we've heard you speak in various places on 
memory and the aging brain and optimizing an aging brain. I specifically perked up when you talked about stress and cortisol and how it relates to memory in the brain, because it's not something that most people think about right up front. But can you talk a little bit about why stress is important for the aging brain? Yeah, I think in our community, in the functional medicine community and uh, functional integrative medicine community, everybody is familiar with stress. Yeah. And they might be familiar with salivary cortisol testing. Right. I certainly use a lot of um, Genovis tests uh, for saliva cortisol, full-point saliva cortisol testing and, and starting to use the cortisol awakening response more and more. But I think what's definitely known is work Bruce McEwen and some of his proteges, Sonia Lupians and Robert Sapolsky, et cetera, on just the, what it does to the brain and how it can actually shrink the brain. We have more work now, transcriptomic studies from UCLA, Stephen Cole, um, George Slavich, others, that it also can knock down the immune system to some extent. And so it appears that from a brain perspective, this is not all worked out yet, but when these types of responses stress responses as our body's releasing cortisol, epinephrine, adrenaline, etc. cetera, um, these kinds of hormones. So not only are there the usual shifts in the H hypothalamus pituitary axis, the so-called, you know, the brain adrenal axis, mm-hmm. but there are also shifts in the immune system. And in fact, it could be that um, some of what Bredesen and others are finding, Rudy Tinsley, Muir at, the, at Harvard, where they're finding mm-hmm. more infection in brains with Alzheimer's could be because of a maladapted immune system response. Um, and what's really interesting, yeah, it is, and it gets, there's even more interest to this, is that there's this really unique period in life that some call senescence. Dr. William Thomas, Bill Thomas, in his model, talks about uh, senescence being almost a, a parallel to adolescence. So we go from childhood into midlife or adulthood and everybody sort of accepts there's a transition period, uh, and we call it adolescence. And whether that starts at 13 and ends at 27, or that starts at 16 and ends at you know, 20, whatever, but everybody ex- accepts that there's this period of time where hormones are changing, things are changing, people are growing into midlife adults. Uh, what is less accepted and seems less well-trodden, although we're having more and more science come out on this, is the other side of that, which is senescence. This is a period probably from late 40s, maybe about age 50 to mid-60s, about 50, age 50 to 65, where there's another transition, and that's where hormones are primarily going down. Mm. So whether you subscribe to the critical window hypothesis and you want to, from a brain perspective, want to add estrogen into that time, or you're an uh, anti-aging type of a, a practitioner that really views most people as benefiting from hormones in general. Right. But as those hormones, those hormones actually have a small but significant buffering effect against uh, some of the the effects of, of stress from mm-hmm. cortisol. Testosterone, uh, probably estrogen, maybe maybe progesterone, uh, DHEA could be in some studies. It could be. So there's a unique susceptibility to a brain and body, but we're talking about the brain here, as people go through menopause and menopause. And then exactly when the right time to intervene is, exactly what the right thing is to do is, of course, still being worked out. But there is this very, very unique and interesting period of susceptibility, which is also, by the way, of course, when 
we have ailing parents and our kids are, mm. are usually launching or they're not. And so there's some unique stressors in that period of life. Right. And then people are starting to, you know, just from a, to take the 30,000 foot view, we are also going through, okay, well, I've raised my kids and I've had a career or whatever we've done. And people are then looking for the next phase or chapter in their life. And, you know, some right. people call that the second half of life. So all those things together really put a, a challenge the, um, the brain and the spirit as well. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, with that whole period of time, you also walk into some opportunities. So there's some opportunities, opportunities at that time as well. Well, just to s- switch gears a little bit, uh, a lot of what we talk about on a regular basis in our practices and as functional medicine clinicians uh, is around diet. And so I'm wondering, how do you use diet in patients wanting to optimize brain health? There's a lot of talk out there about these different diets, ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting. Is there one particular diet that, that you have found in your practice that you tend to lean on a little bit more than others? Yeah, uh, whole foods, you know, the, the Michael <laughs> yeah. Pollan, uh, the Michael Pollan food rules, you know, mostly plants, not too many real food, mostly plants, not too much. Right. Um, right. That seems to incorporate a lot of it. The ketogenic diet or the, you know, what Bredesen calls the 12-3 ketoflex diet actually has been, um, has been an interesting experiment. Uh, some people really respond to it. We've had a few people that um, had subjective cognitive impairment or were more significant and are already in the mild cognitive impairment, which is, by the way, a, a terrible term, mild cognitive impairment, like mildly severe cognitive yeah, impairment. Right. Right. Um, I mean, that's already where they're testing, you know, a couple standard deviations away from the norm. So they're way, way, way far away from anything that's a normal cognition that represents, mm-hmm. as you know, severe, severe brain damage. But anyways, we had some people that have tried the ketogenic diet there and have had some results, um, some real positive results in terms of cognition, sort of woken up, um, memory comes back online. Uh, and that, that, that's, that's really interesting to sort of think about why the reasons for that are uh, Russ Wardlow, Richard Isaacson. Um, there's you know, some people that are, that are looking at that through Q&A and why that is just from a brain energy perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think it's worth a try, but I also like to watch lipids on that, you know, watch cholesterol levels because I've definitely seen them change yeah. uh, those, those levels. And I, 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 I don't know if I have observed you know, hundreds and hundreds of cases, but, um, you know, I've heard people, um, that have published through Verta Health and, and other places that are really championing the, uh, the ketogenic diet that about a third of people will see that lipids have no change. A third of people will find that their lipids are changed for the better on a ketogenic diet. And a third probably are, are seeing maybe lipids get worse. I would definitely seen all of the above. In fact, I'm seeing someone tomorrow is on a ketogenic diet and you can see her, her lipids have, have really gone to a range that might be, might be dangerous. And, and that then becomes important because some data would suggest that, especially for those who are at risk with heart disease, a better looking or a better, you know, the numbers on the lipid panel being better may actually improve memory and executive function right? and, and other aspects of cognition. Mm-hmm. That's something to, to bear in mind. Yeah. And then, you know, I, in general, we see people mostly responding to getting their um, overall insulin resistance corrected or their hemoglobin N1C and their fasting glucose corrected, um, we've started to experience a little bit for those who can afford it with continuous glucose monitoring. Yeah. And the people that have, you know, we've had a few, it's so far it's been more men than women. I remember when I saw Dr. Bresden say this the first time when he gave brand rounds uh, about four years ago at the Cleveland Clinic, 
uh, it was like March of 2016, I think. And he said he had a, a physician that he had made some recommendations to with this protocol. And the man had originally followed some of the recommendations and he had gotten better. This is a guy with diabetes or prediabetes. And then he went off all of the lifestyle and, and other kinds of recommendations and he got worse. And then he picked up the recommendations again and he improved again. Hmm. And I remember when I said that, I remember when when Dale said that, I was like blown away because that's not supposed to happen. I mean, you know, with Alzheimer's, you have good days and bad days, but it's not, you don't get worse and then you get better and then you get worse again. Certainly not related to anything someone's doing in their life. Right. And so I I was just so uh, taken aback by that. And then when I saw that for the first time in one of my patients, I was like, wow, this is, there's something here. Because uh, that, again, it's really not supposed to happen where we see sort of a fairly dramatic case. This case we published with Dr. Bredesen with a guy that had a high-risk copy for Alzheimer's, an APOE4 copy, and um, had like untreated sleep apnea and, you know, diabetes, pre-diabetes really is where he had pre-diabetes. And he just had a lot of basic stuff to clean up. And when he exercised, he got the sleep apnea treated and um, went on diet and supplements, really got better. He wasn't able to work anymore and he went back to work. And then he went off the stuff and he got worse again. And so far, I've seen that more in men than women. I don't know what that's about. That's but, um, but we also look with these continuous glucose monitors. Sometimes we'll see. It's, it's nice because you can actually see postprandial. You can see what the sugar is doing half an hour, an hour, hour and a half after after someone's eating. Yeah. And not always, but we, we, will, we do sometimes see a correlation between those glucose numbers postprandially. So as opposed to like a first thing in the morning, an AM glucose or a hemoglobin A1C or a fructosamine or something like that, uh, that's representing more of an average. But what the physiology is doing really right after eating, when those sugars spike, and it seems, again, I don't have enough dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds of people to talk about at this point where we have this, this level of data available, but it does seem like when the sh- some people are exquisitely, especially people with, that already have diabetes, even if they're off medicines or most of the medicines and have a fairly well-controlled hemoglobin A1C, it does seem that some of these people are exquisitely carbohydrate sensitive. And even if they'll have like a handful of rice or a few tablespoons of rice, a tablespoon or two of rice, their postprandial blood glucose might go to 160, 180, 190. And then it seems to adversely impact cognition. So we think part of the explanation for good days and bad days are going to be how well someone's sugar is controlled their blood sugar is controlled over the last 24 36 hours that's interesting. Really interesting yeah, yeah. I mean it makes a lot of sense we had Dr. Philomena Trindade on and um, she she does oh, a lot of work great. on yeah, yeah she's, she's, she's awesome great. she does a lot of work on diabetes as you know and um, she was saying how she pretty much monitors postprandial glucose and insulin as her main indicators because of how often she's finding those values outside the norm when people have regular serum glucose and A1Cs. And, you know, the other thing that she talked quite a bit about when we had her on was the ability of the intermittent fasting to seemingly, in her hypothesis, kind of stimulate the pancreatic beta cells to begin functioning a little bit better. And I'm just wondering, putting those pieces together from what you're talking about, how much of those individuals whose cognitive impairment is due to maybe this type three diabetes that we talk about, and those are the ones yeah. being carbohydrate sensitive. It kind of makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting. Yeah, we definitely want to try to get people to do the you know the twelve three 
the 12 3 component of the Keto Flex at least, which is 12, 12 hours without eating, preferably three hours before bed. You know, you get autophagy going, right? Start to begin, like you just mentioned, correcting for constant insulin resistance. Yes, as much as we can. You sometimes we see at our practice at Kemper Cognitive Wellness, we're seeing a good number of people that are challenged by Michael Pollan's food rules. You know, eat mostly plants and not too much. You know what I mean? Real mm-hmm. food. So, so we have to kind of ease them in. Sometimes the mind diet, M I N D diet, that was pioneered by Martha Claire Morris, who actually just tragically passed away at a fairly young age mm-hmm. of cancer. Um, but she was she was a giant. She was at Rush University. The mind diet, so it's a little simpler. It's a little more like Weight Watchers meets a, a really healthy Mediterranean sort of Mediterranean dash diet, mm-hmm. um, where you have don't eat more than this number of portions of dairy or of, of pastries, etc., per week. So it gives people a little more leeway. But definitely, if people can follow recommendations where they're able to do time restricted eating or even more so intermittent fasting, it's great. You know, we do have to watch and be. Because I've seen people, especially when they're using things like MCT oil on ketogenic diet, lose a tremendous amount of weight. And that can be really unsafe for older adults, for sure. That can be um, more of a problem if you start losing muscle mass. And mm-hmm. uh, we had, uh, I remember one lady, I remember uh, advising her just you have to really slowly, slowly, uh, and not on an empty stomach, increase the amount of MCT oil. And she had such a bad stomach cramps on MCT oil that she ended up in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just something that you got to take individual by individual. Yeah, ideally, people are doing um, something closer to a ketogenic diet, something that is included uh, includes time restricted eating, and if possible, like intermittent fasting. Um, I'd love to have a lot of you know the routine be people do a week, um, you know, a week uh, per month over three months or more, doing something like prolon or fasting mimicking diet. Those things are all uh, wonderful. Um, and then, you know, we just have to apply it safely in, in the community of people that we see. Sure. Right. Makes sense. Certainly people that we mentioned before, this sort of 45 to 65, usually pretty safe to do that. But once people get into their 70s and 80s, some of my recommendations change in terms of the level of aggressiveness. And it really it depends on the person. I mean, I have a 94-year-old right now who's uh, wanting to do everything, right. hormones right. and all that stuff. And it's... Uh, <laughs> Those, you know, those are different kinds of conversations. Yeah. Those are different kinds of conversations. These are pioneer type of people, you know? Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about hormonal changes and stress, and we're talking about how nutrition and blood glucose can affect. And this personalized approach to cognitive impairment and and how it can possibly be reversed, is this what you're speaking about when we talk about the RECODE protocol, the reversal of cognitive decline protocol that you co-authored with Dr. Bredesen? Yeah, I mean, we just submitted a couple of cases. Um, I think there was a there was a case, there was about a hundred cases there. We submitted two two cases where there was really um, pretty dramatic improvement in people that are not supposed to improve. And you know, I'll be honest with you, my personality is that I'll have doubts until I see it myself. Um, right. And when the first couple we saw ourselves, I was like, "Wow, there is something here." Of course, it doesn't work for everybody, and the longer people wait for a cognitive decline, my you know, I don't know if I heard this analogy somewhere else or. I made it up, but it seems like sort of like staging cancer. If you wait till stage three or stage four cancer, it's much less treatable. But if mm-hmm. you're able to get it early, and that's why, you know, Dr. Bredesen talks about cognoscopies and don't ignore early symptoms. And that's certainly when I go out and talk publicly. It's instead of waiting until, the, you know, you have to take the keys away, 
why don't you start doing something about it when you come into a, a room and you, you can't, you can't remember what you're doing there or, you know, why do I have the keys in my hand? That's, that's really the time to take the most action. You know, by the time we have to take the keys away, like I mentioned before, there's kind of a, there's a profound amount of, of mm-hmm. brain damage that's been done in it. And not that we can't improve people because we do and we have seen improvements. It behooves people, obviously, act early with the, with the symptoms. Right. Interesting. You know, I think there's a lot of people, especially with what's going on right now, there's a lot of people who are experiencing a, a tremendous amount of stress. And a lot of these individuals don't even have a family history of cognitive decline. So what are some of the things that just every everyday individuals can do to help maintain, optimize their, their brain function? I, I know that's a huge question, but <laughs> maybe just a, a couple of the biggies. Well, I mean, it seems so obvious when you say it, but um, I think what I'm hearing from people as we are right now in the in the middle of the beginning of week two of our sort of lockdown from COVID, it depends on, you know, somebody 75 years old or are they 35 years old with three kids in the house? And I think it depends a little bit, but we always come back to the basics, you know, food, movement, sleep, stress, and then, you know, other things, environment, social connection, and then all of the world of toxins, infections, et cetera, et cetera. So without talking about supplementation, which is a probably a worthwhile discussion as well, but, but I see that people, this, these last couple of weeks, they're definitely reaching for more sugar, right? So there's definitely people that are dealing with this through sugar or alcohol or marijuana or whatever it is that people are reaching for to with strong feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then what are the other thing I see is that it, it appears that some people are are able to make time now for exercise. Yesterday, we were still at the social distancing point, but we went out with our family to like a little uh, hike area area. And um, there were more people out than we'd ever seen out uh, at this particular place. And it's a popular place in Cleveland. So certainly exercise. I mean, these are it's like almost boringly obvious that they are. I think for me, the things that become, you know, or were transformational in my own kind of health journey was figuring out more about sleep, right? And kind of the right amount of sleep, how I sleep and what my so-called chronotype is, and then, you know, how to optimize sleep. And then ways to deal with just the crazy waves of thought, the panic and anxiety um, that so many people, myself included, have um, suffered from or continue to suffer from. And for me, uh, and for many, that sort of exercise piece comes back to uh, movement and embodiment. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get two for the price uh, where you're getting, let's say with movement, you can get uh, certain kinds of movement. You can get both the, the exercise advantage as well as some of this, almost like the meditative benefits. So prayer meditation are things that are um, really an essential part of my life. And then, um, and then movement and embodiment is something that, um, it become, you know, I've, I've been involved with to one degree or another since before my teenage years, um, but have really been spending more time with uh, in, a, in kind of a more formal way over the last, you know, seven plus, eight plus years. Uh, and that's been really interesting. Can, can you speak a little bit to that, you know, the, the part about movement? And we know in your life, dance has interestingly been a huge part of 
who you are and, and your, your movement. Um, and in fact, you were once a dance major at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. Can you speak to how dance yeah. is part of your life? Yeah, before I dropped out of college, right? That was my that was my parents' proudest moment for sure. Going to send their kids off to NYU. They're going to send their oldest son off to be a dance major at New York University. That was a very proud moment for the doctor and lawyer parents. Um, you know, I did. I, I was there for a couple of years. Actually, I got I got mono. Um, I got a steam bar, and I got, I literally was knocked out of being able to perform. So I had to drop out of and withdraw from the semester because it was all a studio based, performance based um, credits. I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't do it. It was the first day of the, I remember reaching up in the bookstore, reaching up for book and there's this wave of pain and fatigue that came over me. Hmm. And then I was in bed for oh, a few weeks when we were diagnosed and, um, and I went home and then I went on, it was a sort of a, sort of a spiritual journey for uh, several years hmm. and went overseas. And it was really during that time. I mean, it was already, I already had a, a movement vocabulary. So the, the nice thing about, getting it into formal dance, so ballet and jazz and modern and African and, you know, some other kinds of, of movement, but that you have a vocabulary, right? I also, you know, like sports too. Mm-hmm. And so just just being in the body and having some movement vocabulary was really useful than when we more recently started finding out about the kind of fit, the beyond exercise therapeutic benefits of movement and dance. And I, I sometimes I don't like to say dance because um, I know for my wife, for instance, who she likes yoga, she likes to exercise, but when she, she doesn't think she can dance, it's like saying singing as opposed to voice or sound. Mm-hmm. Um, people think, oh, I'm going to go to the nutcracker, right? It's, this is right. not, when I say dance or conscious dance or ecstatic dance, or it's really just about showing up in sweatpants, closing your eyes and, and moving. In fact, tonight will be a group, a little gathering on Zoom, like on, a, you know, like on the internet, essentially. Mm-hmm. We're trying to figure out how to um, move together in ways that help us transform, uh, really that help us rise above or feel through or allow for some of these feelings of of panic and and anxiousness uh, or low mood or depressed mood or loneliness or overwhelm or pain or, you know, you just go on and on. And I've actually have seen very, this is also very recent, that there is I wouldn't call it a rich literature, but there is some literature on embodied practice, so meaning ways to get into the body through movement, dance, exercise, etc., and dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely been some studies. I mean, th- those those studies go back to almost 20 years. Some of the dance dementia studies, dance and Alzheimer's studies. The uh, Parkinson's community is actually further ahead of, of anyone else, I think, in the neurodegenerative space. So all you know, that's includes Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis and ALS and, you know, frontal, you know, I'll just go on and on with, with the kinds of neurodegenerative disease. I think mm-hmm. Parkinson's actually, in terms of literature, is ahead of it. And actually, there's a dance for Parkinson's organization and funny small world. But um, you mentioned NYU. It, the guy who runs it is a dancer who is the uh, husband of a woman named Lauren Grant, who is in my program at NYU. Nice. So it's just a really, it's a really small world. We just mm-hmm. reconnected a couple of years ago. Wow. Cool. Cool. Well, I'll tell you, I think you're onto something there because several of us here in the medical affairs department at Genova actually take adult dance classes. Like I took tap dance classes. And yeah. you know, as a grown up, and I'm in this tap dance class, you have to use your brain in a whole different way just to remember steps and, and routines. And then you're moving your body. It really is a whole different way of thinking. And you really have to get into it. it and I can see where that research would be going with cognitive decline and dance. It makes sense to me. 
Yeah, and actually, so cognitive decline is one thing, and then there's you know, so anxiety, depression in in midlife. You know, so whether it's when you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, or fifties, is definitely is a risk factor, and it really significantly increases the risk of developing dementias like Alzheimer's. Right. So those are things that you know we treat them just like we treat cholesterol, like those are modifiable risk factors, and they have to be. I mean, in my opinion, it should be treated fairly aggressively because it sort of sets up. There's all kinds of things from um, stem cell expression to walling off the ability from a you know, kind of a brain connect home, like the brain networks um, that are healthy. Uh, it can stress and um, undue stress or trauma can wall off areas, let's say, the, like the frontal, some of the areas in the, in the frontal cortex from these sort of fear centers. And if through things like movement, through things like dance, through things like even therapy to some extent, or dance with therapy, uh, or movement with therapy, there's a variety of them, they really can unburden the mind and body, uh, the body-mind, from some of these, these ails. And uh, you mentioned choreography. Mm-hmm. So according to some literature, and I, uh, there's, a, there's a coursework from a guy named uh, Ryan Glass uh, at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute that's, that's worth uh, looking into, but there's a little bit of data that choreographed movements, things that tax the brain a lot, that have a little bit more of a, um, a cognitive load, may be better in terms of an exercise prescription for uh, conditions like anxiety, actually. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. That's good to know. So I need to get back into my Tai Chi, I think no. is what I heard in that. Maybe you should tai come. Tai Chi, Qigong. Or we should just come to tap, tap class. class. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty good at and it, And, of too. course, the class has, an even, you know, it has all the obvious benefits that everybody's aware of because you're with a group. Right. You know, yeah. And the group is really uh, is where part of the magic is, obviously. That's right. That's right. right. Well, Dr. Bernman, we normally ask one question at the end of a particular interview that's a little bit different. I was going to see uh, just real briefly this one question that we've been tossing around here at the lab report, which is, do you have a favorite vegetable? Yeah, I think I think right now it's probably broccoli. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's super deep. I mean, for real, it's good. I mean, it's good, and, and you can tuck it in. So we do a lot of stir fries and things like that. And you can tuck it into it to a lot of things. But I mean, all, all the medicinal properties of, of uh, cruciferous vegetables and grassy family, I mean, those are, those are, those are obvious. Right now, I'd say it's broccoli. <laughs> well, you know, but, Michael. You know, talk, to me in the, talk to me in the summertime, you know what I mean? Probably <laughs> doing something a little leafier. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you. I mean, thank you so much for all that wonderful information. So much to think about. Taking time out of your day to, to come on with us and, uh, putting up with that last question that I asked you. Um, yeah, no problem. That's funny. You know, I think, where, tell us a little bit about what's going on at Kemper Center for Cognitive Health and Wellness and um, anything else that you have going on right now. Yeah, so at Kemper Cognitive Wellness, we really are a center for any issue of mood and mind. So we see, the youngest person we've seen is up 16 years old, depression, anxiety. So we see a lot of problems, depression, anxiety, ADHD, concussion, those sorts of things. Uh, insomnia, and then we do kind of the full care continuum of people with cognitive impairment. So people that are concerned because they had, you know, their their mother, their father passed away in a nursing home with uh, Alzheimer's disease, and they feel like they're at risk. So we uh, do risk modification, risk reduction, optimization, and then we see people that are actually in the throes of subjective cognitive impairment, certainly mild cognitive impairment, and and at any phase of disease with like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or et cetera. 
we see people at the gamut and uh, we've programmed to do individual individualized um, pieces. Certainly we have a dietitian, health coach, um, adding and adding some other, other things, looking at peptides and um, other kinds of neurostimulation, neurotherapies that are in some cases uh, transformational and, and game changers. So we're, we really just are trying to cobble together um, as many tools that are, that are transformational, that are that really can impact people fairly quickly. Um, and fairly quickly may not be a half an hour, but it might be two, three, two, three months um, of use where they can really, really uh, make a difference in their life. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do, um, the great work that you do. I think everyone in the functional medicine community appreciates everything that you're doing and, and your particular insight on these particular topics. I would also say encourage people to go to Dr. Bergman's podcast entitled Evolving Past Alzheimer's, which tons of great information and furthers this conversation as well. Yeah. Mm, thank you for saying that. Yeah. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day, Dr. Bergman. I uh, uh, just it was great talking. Great to you talking today. to you today. Thank you, doctors. I appreciate you. Of course. Okay, so I think we established that I need to do more. You Tai I think Chi. We all need to do more things. Like I feel like I need to intervene now. I, you should come to tap dance class with us. You do not want to see that. <laughs> no one wants to see that. That would be tremendously terrible. But. Tai Chi is something that I can do. Qigong cool. is something right. that I can do. Right. But yeah, you're right. I, I think, man, his point about the fact that the anxiety, depression, mood disorder, all those being modifiable risk factors. I know. That's really, really interesting. It really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It does. But it puts it into a very concrete perspective that you're right. I think I need to start. A, we all do. 38 years old. Getting we all on top do. of this. Yes, you do. But I mean, I'm, how that, many times do I find myself in a room not knowing why I'm in that particular room? <laughs> Every day in the podcast room. <laughs> <laughs> That's different. I know. That's other people saying, why is he in that room? But I'm really glad we got to talk to Dr. Bergman. Likewise. Wicked smart. And uh, yeah, so uh, what are we talking about next time? Um, next time on The Lab Report, we speak to an expert in functional nutrition, Bridget Tijemeyer. Beingbridget.com. That's her website. Yep. Go to it. Wow, that was bossy. Yeah. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Do you think anyone listens to these Easter eggs at the end? I think if they do, they they're probably think it's a mistake. You think? Yeah, they're like, <laughs> what just, what? That was just them talking. No, but like... They should have edited that out. In iTunes, it kind of, one goes into the next to the next. You can't help but to hear them. Oh, so you think people are just binging these? Yeah, of course they are.